A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are travelling back in time to a period I consider absolutely fascinating and I think we need far more people researching it to bring it all back to life. From the mid-17th century onwards, the capabilities of sea power dramatically and exponentially increased. European powers began to take up permanent positions in foreign countries, laying the foundations for the subsequent colonialism that shaped the modern world. Whilst they vied for control of the new global trade that linked east with west, that rivalry led to some of the largest-scale fleet battles ever fought. To help bring it all to life, we've animated a cutaway drawing of a first-rate ship. You all know what I mean. It's one of those drawings where you view a ship from a beam, but the whole planks have been removed so you can see inside. It feels like a modern idea, but it's not at all. And we've brought to life one of the oldest surviving examples from 1701. So please make sure that you check it out. It'll be on our YouTube channel and across our social media. To find out more about this image and more broadly about the Navy of Charles II, I spoke with Richard Enzer. Richard began his career as an engineer and has dedicated his life to studying the structures and building processes of 17th century ships. He's written several award-winning books and I would particularly recommend The Master Shipwright's Secrets, for which he was awarded the prestigious Anderson Medal for the best maritime book published in 2020 and the Certificate of Merit for the best illustrated book at the Mountbatten Maritime Award for Best Literary Contribution in 2022. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. If ever an historian was an embodiment of the effort, energy and knowledge it took to build a ship of the line in the 17th century, then here is your man. Not old and creaky, but strong and majestic. A work of art as much as a historical weapon. Here is the brilliant Richard. Richard, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Well, thank you for inviting me, Sam. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I should say that for all of our listeners that we've created a really wonderful little animation of a um, early 18th century or late late 17th century ship. And um, I first asked Richard to help me out with that because he is the man who knows more about 17th century warships than anything else. So let's start by, um, tell me a little bit about Thomas Phillips and his painting of the first rate. 
Yeah, um, it's a very, very lovely painting, as you've seen. Um, a section through the middle of a, of a first-rate ship. The paintings came about a result of a print. Um, the print was made from a drawing, and the drawing was done by Thomas Phillips. Uh, so Phillips, who's an engineer, not, not a naval man, um, he did a drawing uh, from which the print was made. We know that because it says Phillips on the print. So the origin of it came from, from Phillips. And from that, it appears this painting was made. Now, the painting may not have been by Phillips, of course. It may have been done by somebody else copying uh, the print. Um, but it's obviously attributed to Phillips because it's obviously based on the print. That print is interesting as well because it was must have been very famous in its time because I've actually got a copy of it, um, but it's an Austrian one. Um, it's exactly the same, but it's all in German and uh, with the double eagle flag on the stern and things like that. So it was obviously um, pretty popular at the time. Now, it's great because it's a, it's a cutaway. So it's it's like one of those very famous images you get in maybe the Guinness Book of Records or something. It's of a ship cut through on the side, so you can see everything yeah. that's going on inside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, will you just... Uh, it, it's got, I mean, some um, really interesting technology. Let's talk about a few of the things that it shows and how it helps us understand first rates of this period. Okay. Uh, one of the most notable things, uh, it doesn't have a ship steering wheel. Uh, this is because... The ship's steering wheel had only been um, invented in about 1703, something like that. And before that, they, the end of the tiller, you've got the rudder coming up at the stern, and then moving the rudder, you've got the tiller, just like on a small boat. But the front of the tiller is either controlled by ropes and pulleys with the ship's steering wheel, or before that, as in this time, we've got a, a, just a simple lever called a whipstaff. So one guy is moving this tiller around, with this, with this, uh, with this whip stuff, it's just a lever um, which pivots, you know, in the in the deck. The big disadvantage was that um, being, especially on a third, on a first rate like that, where you've got three decks, is the guy is deep down in the ship. He can't actually see where the ship's going. He can't no, see all the, the sails, all the sails yeah. <laughs> or anything like that. So he has to be conveyed. Um, conned as they called it uh with instructions from the decks up above that was a big disadvantage with it apart from that it seemed to work quite well so you know when they invented the steering wheel as you can see on the victory today the guy is up there at the top and he can see exactly where he's going and everything's not going to hit anything so yeah it was a big advantage um uh when they uh discovered the use of a of a ship steering wheel what do we know about that that invention was it did some someone suddenly come across it or was it a kind of a slow progress towards towards the obvious solution well do you know what um there's nothing in the records certainly not, not that i've seen who anybody reckons they've they've invented it or anything it just came about um well the thing was they british i mean dutch well, we, where do we, we don't do we any idea yeah I, I only studied the english side of it and i think it came from our side it was first used in the Royal Navy, as far as I can tell. Um, but they, they used blocks at the side of the ship to move the tiller um, in storms and things like that yeah. when, when the whip staff wasn't enough. So they had that. But then taking those ropes up to the top deck and putting a wheel there, in the first, it wasn't the sort of standard steering wheel. Um, it, was, it was kind of a drum 
with a with a with a um, a pulley on the end which they moved around. That was the first use of it, and it's such a simple modification. It appears that it was handed down by mouth, and the ship's carpenter could make that equipment. Certainly, in any shipyard, yeah, they'd soon knock that up, no problem at all. So, it came about one of those really important inventions came about. Um, it didn't require any great um, design or anything like that. It just sort of happened. So uh, it's quite interesting, actually, the way the way it did appear. Um, but as I say, it appeared that the first use is 1703, something like that. Um, it appears on models about that time as well. Yeah. The pumps are also fascinating. Let's talk about the pumps, the chain yes. pumps on a first rate. Was it was it only the very biggest ships that had well these pumps? Actually, let's explain what a chain pump was. Let's do that first. <laughs> yeah, um, the the idea, of course, is with, with a wooden ship moving in the sea, you're always going to get leaks. Uh, yeah. They come in through the seams of the plank, and um, it's quite healthy in many ways. It keeps the bottom of the ship damp. Um, when it's always wet, it doesn't rot. It's sometimes wet, sometimes dry, it will. Uh, so it's it's not a bad thing to have a certain amount of water coming in the ship. But, of course, to get that water out, you need to draw it up from the very bottom of the ship, uh, take it up to the level of the gun deck, the, main, the first deck above the water line, and then take it through tubes to the side of the ship. And um, to do that, they didn't use a suction pump. They used a tube in which they drew on a wheel uh, a chain with valves on it. So the valves drew the water up the pump and expelled it into a cistern at the top. And from there, it flowed to the side of the ship. And they were always trying to improve this invention. There's countless um, documentation. Some of them were quite hilarious, actually, about the experiments that uh, took place to improve ships' pumps. They're always trying to improve them. And in fact, they hardly changed at all. Look at the 17th century pumps and those on the Victory. They're almost identical. They've just made wooden bits out of iron, things like that. So so although they did change, uh, the principle remained the same. But they were used, as you, as you mentioned, they were used on uh, quite small ships to the very largest ones. Um, the very smallest ships, tiny ships had uh, suction pumps um, and suction pumps were also used on big ships as, as a as an option just to bring water up um, uh, for washing the decks things like that so on big ships like those big third rates they had four pumps around the middle of the main mast there was generally two behind the main mast and two in front one each side uh, and on two decker ships uh, third rates, fourth rates, fifth rates, sixth rates. There was just two pumps just behind the main mast. So, you know, they were well covered. They needed to be very reliable. The ships carried lots and lots of spare parts for these things. You see always lists of all the S hooks and the valves and things like that, all the extras and spare parts they'd need because they were absolutely vital, of course, to uh, keeping a ship afloat. I wonder if um, anyone's actually done any proper work into what spare parts sailing warships took with them, because it's a fascinating bit, because they have to be completely self-reliant. I mean, yeah. yes, you can you, later on in the period, you can go across the 
to the Caribbean and you can go and find a dockyard in Antigua or whatever and you can mend your ship and there are some resources there. But for a very long time before that, they the vessels had to be entirely self-sufficient. Um, and I'm assuming there's there's an enormous amount of space set aside for um, spare canvas and spare spare timber as well, I think is interesting. Do you any sense of how much spare timber they took with them? Oh, quite a lot. Quite a lot, Sam. Um, on the all-op deck, the deck... Uh, underneath the main gun deck, and it's actually just below the water level, uh, there was a carpenter's stores, and he kept all sorts of uh, pieces of timber, specialist pieces of timber already made up, uh, spare spars, um, uh, lots and lots of different timber. Of course, it, most of the things he could actually make, there were the blocks, lots of blocks, things like that, kept as spares. Um, sails, uh, um, there were many suits of sets of sails, you know, about four sets of sails kept in the sail room on this deck as well. So, yeah, lots and lots of spare parts, gun carriages. You know, there was a whole lead of, lot of spare parts. And as we said, spare parts for pumps, things like that. So, yeah, they did carry an awful lot of uh, extra equipment, which they would need as parts broke, which they inevitably did, of course. Rope as well was another thing. They carried a huge amount of rope, huge amount of anchor cable, things like that. And spare anchors, I suppose. Spare I mean, anchors, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About, well, thinking about the wood as well, I mean, they must have had different types of wood because you need different types of wood. Different, different types of wood has different jobs on a sailing warship, right? So you've got pine for the planks, you've got oak for the frames, you've probably got some kind of I don't know green oak. What do, what do they? Do you know what they use for making the blocks out of? Oh, the the, the blocks themselves are generally the shells are made of elm, um, different materials for the, for the pulleys. But uh, yeah, they mostly carried oak. Uh, most of the outside planking was oak as well. Um, There's one or two parts. They carried a lot of deal, softwood uh, for bulkheads. They were always putting up temporary cabins or permanent cabins. Uh, they used a lot of softwood for things like that. And some of the very upper decks were also softwood as well to keep the thing light. And at the very top of the ship, at the sides, uh, they called it quick work. And that was softwood as well to keep these very upper parts of the ship light. Uh, the, these ships, the, 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 the great ship that, um, that Phillips did in his print, um, a few years earlier, when they started making ships like that, they called them frigate-built because they were more lightly built than the earlier great ships. The great ships early in the 17th century were massively built. But then they discovered this uh, way of building, which they called frigate-built. And you even see large ships called frigate-built. So they kept the upper works as light as possible. They were really, really were aware of the design concept of um, weight and strength. So important when you're building a ship. So, yeah, a lot of things to consider when you when you're designing, building, and repairing ships like that. Yeah, fascinating as well. We don't. I should say that with this first rate, we know it's a first rate that he's drawn. Yeah, but we don't know which one. Do we have any? Do we think it was a specific vessel? There was some earlier thoughts, um, and I can't remember which one it was supposed to be. I think someone suggested it was the St. Andrew. But um, uh, the great expert on identifying these ships, uh, Frank Fox, he's closely studied it. I don't know if you met Frank, but uh, really nice guy. And uh, he did a lot of study on it. And um, 
he he concluded that it wasn't a, any particular ship. I mean, most drawings of ships of this period, they're generic. They're not actually of a particular ship. Models are much the same. You Very difficult to pin down a model or a drawing or something like that to a particular ship. Um, and Frank come to the conclusion this wasn't any particular ship. It was just a generic uh, first-rate ship of the line. Very similar in concept to um, a drawing in the Peeps Library that Dummer did. Uh, he's got a um, a drawing through the centre of a, of a three-decker like that, uh, did have done a few years earlier. So, you know, it was a what's the sort of thing they did around this time. Mm. Well, it's good to bring up Peeps, actually. Let's talk a little bit about him and about this whole period. So it's Charles II and Samuel Peeps. Tell us about what they got up to and how they improved the Navy. Yeah, I mean, so controversial, Peeps, you know, um, you you read his diary and if you've read his diary, you can't help but like him. Um, but of course, he was a terrible womanizer, and uh, uh, you can say it's abuse, but I mean, things things he writes in his diary, he he would is one of his maids. He would love to uh, grope her breast, but he dare not, lest she be an honest woman and tell my wife. Oh no! And in a modern context, very inappropriate, of course. Yeah. And of course, he was corrupt as well. In many ways, he receives gloves and presents and pride, um, uh, gifts of gold, things like that. Um, but as administrator, he was a great administrator. And I like to, when I think of Peeps, is think of his huge, great achievement, which he was famous for in his own time. And that was the building of the 30 ships of 1677, just after the Third Dutch War. The English Navy was at the best only equal to the Dutch and the French navies. And Pepys persuaded Parliament himself to vote money to build a whole new fleet of 30 ships. I mean, this is a fleet of ships. Ten of them were, to do, were going to be great three-deckers, and the other 20 were going to be... Third rates, uh, two deckers, you know, ships of the line. And um, once Parliament had voted £600,000 to build these ships, they wanted to make sure, because you know, they always accused Charles of spending money where he shouldn't, they wanted to make sure that it was well spent. So the Peeps and Charles II's administration made sure that didn't happen. First of all, Charles took over at the Admiralty Board meetings where he's always... Um, attended more meetings than anybody else. Charles looked at this, at what Parliament had voted, 900 tonnes, as big as any third rates built. Charles knew future enemies would probably be the French and not the Dutch, so they'd need to fat sail further these ships. So he insisted they'd be made bigger. He actually wrote out himself the actual dimensions these ships would be, much to the worry, of, as you can imagine, of the other Admiralty Board meetings going against Parliament. He upped them to 1,100 tonnes from 900 tonnes. And he also uh, came with innovations like having a more upright stem rather than the curved stem because these fine line ships tended to pitch in the sea. And by having a more upright stem, you'd increase buoyancy at the bow so the ships wouldn't pitch as much. And that was Charles's idea. So things like, yeah, personally... And it, as Peep says, um, the king would happily explain to anybody who he thought would have the understanding of it his new concepts. So Charles was uh, um, he was 
innovative. He knew an awful lot about shipbuilding. He made friends of master shipwrights. So anyway, with the specification agreed by Charles... Yeah, hang on, I'm going to interrupt you there. Yes, how, yes. how did Charles know all about this? Well, because there are many examples of kings and queens who knew, no, even kings and queens of England, who knew nothing at all about, about um, sea power. Well, Charles, as we all know, is famous for his pleasures. And um, what people didn't publicise so much at the time um, was one of his major pleasures, which he spent more time on than anything else, was in fact the Navy. He did attend more Admiralty Board meetings than anybody. He attends more or less every one. And. Um, did he get he, it from his dad? Oh, I really don't know. I mean, his dad took an interest as well, actually. We know he visited shipyards. Uh, it was the biggest spending department, of course, in the economy. You know, it's a, It was the first big industry, shipbuilding industry. He took a huge interest in it. He made more, you can say he made friends of people like Phineas Pett. He spent an awful lot of time with shipwrights. He wanted to know how ships are built and the principles of the design. So he made it his business to know a lot about shipbuilding, as well, of course, appointing all the officers himself. He more or less knew all his officers, even warrant officers during this period, you know, lowly warrant officers, a carpenter of a ship. You find their warrants are all signed by King Charles himself. So he took an enormous interest in the Navy. So, and, you know, once he'd agreed this principle um, of just what the specification of these ships would be, it came over to Peeps and the administration to implement it and to make sure the money wasn't spent on anything else. They had all the yards, had an area uh, fenced off where all the materials bought to build these 30 ships was to be kept so it couldn't be used on anything else. They also um, had account books kept for every ship. Everything that went to the ship was listed. Every nail, bit of rope, everything was listed, uh, listed and costed. So they knew how much exactly was spent on each ship. And on top of that, the master shipwrights had to write a weekly progress report to make sure all those men employed were doing what they were supposed to do. So it was a brilliantly organised um, uh, programme. And as a result of all this control and all these innovations, they were innovations at the time, all this control. As a result of that, of course, these 30 ships were delivered on time, on budget, and they were huge success. And they made Britain the most powerful navy in the world for the next 250 years. It was the beginning, this 30 ships, of their great uh, maritime strength. So that is all down, really, I think, to Samuel Pepys and most most importantly, King Charles II himself. Wonderful. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Where were the yards, where were the ships built? Which yards were there? Well, primarily, Parliament had said, because they were, they were A, they were worried about a war with the French, and A, they wanted the money spent quickly to make sure Charles didn't siphon it off, because it was very political at the time. This is Popish plot time. Um, they, they stipulated they were all to be built within two years, which is almost impossible. Um, but they, they allocated the ships out to the royal yards, um, Deptford, Woolwich, Portsmouth um, uh, and Chatham. Uh, th- those major places but of course that wasn't enough and some of them had to be built by contract by the Thames shipbuilders and one was built at Bristol so they were all they would have all been built on time as well except for the popish plot um peeps's administration peeps himself was kicked out of office and uh so that slowed it down but basically these ships are all built exactly according to contract um there was a bit of a difficulty with the cost because the ships are much bigger than... Um, and I believe that Parliament had voted for guns to be supplied with these ships. But I noticed that most of these ships didn't have new guns. They were supposed to have 32-pounder demi-cannon on the gun deck and 12-pounders on the upper. Now, nearly all of them didn't have 12-pounders. They used existing guns. That, I mean, guns last longer than ships, as you can imagine. So... Most of them had existing guns. Nothing wrong with those old guns. A lot of them were were browns, fine metal guns, or even these fabled Rupertinos were used on these ships. So the ships didn't suffer. Um, you know, the money was spent where it should have been spent. I mean, when you think, Sam, compared with a modern thing like uh, HS2, you know, the, the budget overspends already on that. And even in the Navy, the Type 45 frigates, you know, way over budget, and they're still sitting around in Portsmouth Harbour, many of them, they're still not gone to sea because they're not completed yet. So, yeah, you I, honestly, I, I do believe that administration was absolutely tops. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, to build a ship, you need an enormous amount of timber, maybe timber from a thousand trees off the top of my head, something like that. Yeah, but it yeah. all needs to be seasoned. So yeah. how did they deal with that? Because you, you can't suddenly build one ship, let alone build 30. Had they <laughs> no. been planning it? Had they been planning it? Long was there enough tim seasoned timber in the yards to cope with such a new order of course not no you needed one of the third rates the smaller ones two thousand oak trees needed to build one of them enormous amount of timber so and it wasn't all sitting around waiting for them being seasoned they had they were cutting down the trees and making them into ships straight away so they were totally green um this has been the advantage. It's a lot easier to, to work when it's uh, oak, especially. Um, try working that when it's well-seasoned. Oh, my God, it's like iron. You know, you can't. So, you you know, to build it in green uh, wood is is fine. But, of course, they need an awful lot of care once they've been built to make sure they season um, when they're in the water. And that is 
things went a bit wrong there. And uh, many of these ships suffered from rot in the preceding uh, years and needed a lot of repair work. But um, a lot, all ships did. The whole, All the old fleet needed a lot of repair work as well. <clears throat> Main reason was mini ice age. You know, freezing cold winters, which are opening up the planks, um, followed by hot summers. And you needed a lot of care to make sure these ships were well looked after, which they didn't get because of the Popish plot and the uh, new naval administration, which the parliament insisted on, uh, which, of course, um, weren't naval experts as, as the Peeps era was. So, yeah, it's a very complex subject. Uh, yeah, there's lots of instructions about how to look after ships. Uh, you know, for instance, when it's hot and sunny, all the hatches open, the gun ports open. Well, ships are in ordinary, just sitting there in harbour. They have their five warrant officers and their servants to look after the ship. That's their primary duty. And they're supposed to, when it's hot, open up all the gun ports, open up all the hatches, lift up the movable deck planks um, in the hold where the all lot was. The planks weren't fixed to make sure it was all aired nicely. And when it rains, of course, they do the opposite. They close all, it all up, make sure the rain doesn't come in. And when it's hot, they're supposed to water down the sides of the ships to make sure they don't dry out too much. None of that happened, unfortunately, you know, um, in the years just after they were built um, because of the uh, new administration. So, I see. So, yeah, you've got this kind of constant change of politics, constant change of people and yeah. uh, make keeping it going over time. Very difficult indeed. Yeah. Um, tell us about the skills of the shipwrights. Yeah, they were, of course, served a, a lengthy seven year apprentice. Um, and it, they seem to be extremely capable. The the ships could be built. Peeps wrote it himself. I could hardly believe it. But he reckoned 100 men could build a, a third-rate ship, one of these 1,100-ton ships, uh, in a year. I was like, oh, I can't do that. From This is this is by hand, from trees to the ship. I, I could hardly believe it. And I did a study on it, and it's actually true. Um yeah, uh, uh, most a lot of things, of course, are bought in from outside, like the masts, a lot of specialist stuff. Um, but basically speaking, yeah, a hundred men could do it. Um, this was a hundred. This was a hundred men working every day, uh, but they didn't always do that. Of course, you find that um, they obviously had time off and things, um, uh, so it didn't quite work out like that. But nevertheless, the first ship of this program, the Lennox, was built in ten months incredible build rate to build a ship from nothing to have a ship on the water in 10 months they they were extremely competent these the, the ordinary shipwright look at the carvings they cost almost nothing in that time 120 pound uh, compared with 12000 pound to build a ship so the cost of the carving was minimal but look at the carvings festooned in them so huge skills which was known by more or less everybody um very different the skills of the ordinary shipwright who did that compared with the master shipwright who actually designed the ships. He had a different skills. Yeah, and that was all very secretive, secretive skills, wasn't it? They, oh, they it were very was. protective. Tell us about that. Well, I based the book, my last book was based on that very principle. Um, Pepys himself wanted to know the secrets of the master shipwrights, and he asked the master shipwrights, for a little treatise about about shipbuilding, and his very good friend uh, Sir Anthony Dean wrote him a fabulous treatise, um, Dean's Doctrine. It's called. It's in Magdalen College, Cambridge, and it's got, full of drawings how to design a ship, uh, the 
the most important thing to control the shape of the ship's hull is, you know, you imagine if you draw the shape curves of a ship, when you build that in the in a yard, if you scale from a drawing, you're going to be a long way out. So the major curves of these ships that control the shape of the ships are actually done by mathematical formula. So you've got a formula that defines a point in 3D so they actually could tell exactly the shape of the ship, controlling it at the breadth and, and the shape underwater. And this was the Master Shipwright's secrets. And while Steen describes how you do this, he uses very, very simple curves. He uses true arcs, which are easy to explain in his treatise. And of course, it keeps his secrets because he's not actually giving you how he did a real ship because simple arcs like that simply wouldn't cut it. Now, another treatise that was given peeps was one by John Shish, the master shipwright at Deptford. And he had a completely different method of given a treatise, he um, he simply gave the dimensions of a ship, lots and lots of dimensions of a fourth-rate ship. And it gives the length of all the decks, the height between the decks, the breadths at different points, things like that. But at the back of this little treatise, there's lists of columns of digital figures. And these are his actual curves. He's actually mm. written out the curves. He protects his secrets by not giving you the formula as, as he did. So, <laughs> nice. so I, but I found that absolutely fascinating. So at the time, um, I was working in the aircraft industry, um, uh, writing computer programs on designing aircraft parts. And one of the things you can do with that software was put a mathematical formula in there, especially a ge geometric one, which was used to do this, um, put it in a macro with a loop, and the loop could go through all the stations along the ship. Uh, and I could, I even could compare the results of a test formula with the results given by Shish. So instantly I could see how far out a test formula was. And of course, I could instantly ma make an adjustment. And until I got to the actual formula used by Shish, and they came out, the results came out more or less perfect. I could imagine I spent quite a lot of time playing around with that um, in my spare time. Um, but yeah, that, but that was the basis of the book. So I actually come across the formula actually used by Shish to, to define the shape of his ship, of his hull. And funnily enough, this ship, this fourth-rate ship he describes in his little treatise, he actually built a ship to almost identical dimensions some years later. Uh, a very fine line ship it was as well, a ship called the Tiger. So that's, I thought, oh, I've got to write a book about that. So um, that's where that's where the book came from. Well, it's, one, it's a wonderful book, and I'd encourage all of our listeners to uh, to go and buy it and to check it out. Richard, thank you very much indeed for sharing this. It's such a wonderful story, and I'd love to get you back on to tell us more. More about Samuel Pepys, I think, to find out about the administration. <laughs> OK, well, thank you for having me, Sam. It's been a real pleasure.
thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please remember that the Mariner's Mirror podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation, and you must do everything you can to find out what those brilliant institutions are up to. In particular, please check out the YouTube channel of the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It's had well over a million views. It's got some fabulous material on there, in particular this latest animation of a 17th century warship, which you really have to see to believe it. Uh, the Lloyd's Register Foundation are currently publishing their excellent project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature, filming the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment. And you also have to see that to believe it. Just Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. That's all for now. We'll be back soon.